Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be giving the Gresham Lecture on the South Sea Bubble. It's particularly timely because 1720 was the bubble year and 2020 the tercentenary of that year. The bubble itself, the South Sea Bubble, is one of a pair of financial crises, the other being on the Paris Stock Exchange, and that was known as the Mississippi Bubble. These events happened when the stock market was relatively new and very few people understood finance. So the opportunity was there for myths and legends to grow up. I hope in this lecture to explain to you some of the facts behind the bubble year and also bring more detail to what is a very well-known story, but which few people seem to understand in any great depth. Many people have heard of the bubble, they associate it with perhaps some sort of fraud or something to do with Robert Walpole, Britain's first prime minister, but they don't know much about it beyond that. Well, I hope to enlighten you. Interestingly, in 2020, we had various activities planned to commemorate the bubble year, which all had to be shelved because of COVID. But 2020 was a momentous year in other ways because it drew attention to slaving history. Indeed, histories of people that had been overlooked, at least on the national level, for quite some time. Few people outside of Bristol had heard of Edward Colston until his statue went into Bristol Harbour as part of a protest. Colston had been venerated as a great benefactor of the city of Bristol paying for arms, houses and schools. And that is why his statue had been put up in the first place. He had been, if you like, unmasked as a major slave trader by successive generations of political activists and historians because of his connections to the very top ranks of the Royal African Company, which was Britain's preeminent slaving company at one point. Colston's vast wealth was connected to the RAC, but also to the sugar trade. And sugar was farmed on the plantation economies of the Caribbean, which were a byword for cruelty. It's interesting to me, having studied the South Sea bubble for well over 20 years, going on 25, that for a very long time, the South Sea Company's slaving activities have been overlooked. In fact, some people had believed strongly that the South Sea Company wasn't even involved in the slave trade. It had been set up to handle government debt, a complicated process that I will hopefully unpick for you, but it had also been given the right to trade in slaves to the Spanish colonies. And one aspect of this trade that is important is that it was working alongside Colston's old company, the Royal African Company. Therefore, investment in the South Sea Company, whether in the bubble year or not, is an investment in the slave trade. And the reassessment of this aspect of the South Sea Company's history has brought all kinds of things to light, including the investments of Thomas Guy. Guy was much better known than Edward Colston because he gives his name 
to Guy's Hospital in London. This is his statue that stands in the grounds. Guy was a bookseller and philanthropist, but he was also someone who invested in the South Sea Company and hence in the slave trade. The reassessment of these links between the early economy and slavery have reinvigorated an interest in the South Sea Company itself. But the usual tale is one where the slave trade is mysteriously absent and is re replaced instead with stories of gambling mania, folly and fraud, and all kinds of ridiculous goings on on the stock market. It is true that there was a huge increase in the share price of the South Sea Company, which went far above any reasonable assessment of its value. You can see it here as the blue line. You can also see just as sharply the fall in the share price as people panicked and sold out of that company. And that might have something to do with goings on within the company itself, but also I would argue about the market as a whole. Wider issues must be at stake here because we can see that the Bank of England and the East India Company also experience a rise and fall in their share prices, which cannot be explained merely by the activities of the South Sea Company itself. Simply blaming the company directors for some sort of mysterious fraud is easy to do, but that said, fraud has never really been adequately explained to the public at the time. There wasn't much in the way of understanding of finance, education about the stock market, any sort of academic insight into how stock markets worked. Essentially, it was a hands-on business. And when you see this, you might be thinking about, say, the dot-com bubble or housing price bubbles. You may very well have lived through a series of bubbles which created some disquiet at the time, but were not particularly devastating. The South Sea bubble was viewed as devastating by contemporaries, but I'm going to go ahead and show you that it really wasn't, at least in the English context. This share price going up and back down again, though, did get a lot of public attention. And because it was one of the very first bubbles that the public had been aware of, it got a lot of coverage in the press and also by politicians. There was a huge market for critiques of the stock market and the kind of people who were in the stock market. There's vast amounts of items like this one, Thomas Durfee's Hubble Bubble of 1720, a song which Durfee would have written, cobbled together and sold to take account of the public interest in the South Sea Bubble itself. These sorts of artworks, poems, plays and the like were created primarily to put food on the table for allow these people like Durfee to make money. And that must be kept in mind because very few of these commentators really understood what had gone on and not much in these 
songs or pictures gives you much assessment of finance itself. It gives you more of a social history. Hubble Bubble here starts off with Jews, Turks and Christians hear my song, which immediately puts us in an understanding that we're dealing with foreigners, people who don't come from the mainstream as it would be seen by Durfee and his contemporaries. This was a country that had a landed economy, power came from land ownership. It was a patriarchal system, one that revolved around the importance of the Church of England as opposed to other types of Protestant denomination and certainly foreigners, Jews, Catholics, and a variety of other people, women and servants, for example, would have been seen as not the proper type of people to become wealthy in the new stock market. We have on the second line, the second verse, Scotsmen, the Irish, Dutch, and the Germans. This image here crops up every time the South Sea bubble is mentioned. It's a very famous one, but it's also a very cluttered and complicated one. It's William Hogarth's print, The South Sea Bubble. It's the only original English print of the period. Usually what people did was they simply took Dutch prints, which were of a greater quality, rehashed them a bit, took off the Dutch and replaced it with English, and then just sold it on, essentially pirating Dutch prints. Hogarth bothered to draw his own from scratch, and it's very interesting. We can see various allegorical figures, like the man being broken on the wheel, or another person being whipped at the pillory. We've got as well, Fortuna being hacked into bits by a devil on the left-hand side. The monument we can see on the right, looming over the scene, is the monument to the Great Fire of London, connecting the supposed disaster of the South Sea with the very real disaster of the Great Fire. On top of the monument, you can see what appear to be wolves climbing all over it. In the middle section at the back, we can see something that says, cool ride, some sort of whirly gig, which people climb up onto and go round and round. The idea, I suppose, is to show some sort of foolishness. On the left-hand side, we see a woman touching the chin of somebody who might be a clergyman or a lawyer. On the right-hand side, there's a Scotsman in a Scots bonnet and kilt. These are people who are, if you like, stock characters to be laughed at. At least that is what Hogarth is putting them there. And the understanding that women should not be involved in finance because to do so would be giving them financial independence, which might lead to sexual immorality. That idea crops up again and again and again in the period. We can see it here in the print by Hogarth. You'll see there's a building to the right at the back with people going in to a door. They're going into a building where they are raffling for husbands. These are women going in to 
to get husbands. And there was a great deal of anxiety that women's involvement in finance would allow them to interfere in the workings of the marriage market, that old women would marry young men because the old woman was wealthy, and that young women would marry men simply for their money. At the top of the building, we can see a cuckold's horns, and a cuckold is a man whose wife is cheating on him. In the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, there are three figures playing some sort of gambling game. They are two Catholic clergymen and a Jewish man. The whole issue about this print, if you look at it closely, is that it has no disappearing vanishing point. The lines do not meet in the same point, which has been done deliberately. No vanishing point gives the sense of disorder and confusion. Hogarth is giving us the world of finance as a strange place of mythical creatures being broken on wheels or wolves climbing all over monuments, Scotsmen riding around on some sort of carousel, women raffling for husbands, and of course, the Catholics and the Jews gambling in the foreground. Finance, the stock market, it was a new place. It was a new way in which people who might have been excluded from the social system or overlooked could make money. And that is where the anxieties come in that are depicted, if you like, in this series of stereotypes and critical attacks. What this does not show, you may notice, is anything to do with the slave trade. Not one of these people seems to be at all connected to the horrors of that trade. And indeed, this area here in the center is where Hogarth was setting his scene. It was very difficult to draw a picture of what's known as Exchange Alley because it's a cramped, tightly spaced series of alleys in the financial area of London. It's a place that had coffee houses where people could conveniently go to read newspapers, hear the news, and meet their broker. You didn't have to go there in order to buy shares because brokers would move around to different places like the Bank of England in order to meet customers there. You can see the bank just at the top. At this point, it's not reached its full extent. It's on a much smaller plot. And an earlier version of the Royal Exchange is visible at the top of the screen. The Royal Exchange was really a place to trade commodities, including imported commodities. And the story goes that that's where people trading in shares started off, but they became too noisy and rowdy and were thrown out. Moving across Cornhill into Exchange Alley and the coffee houses that were conveniently located therein. Now, whether that story is true or not, the idea that anyone can go into a coffee house that this was not a place that was sealed off like later versions of the stock exchange, professionalized with rules and regulations, but also only really catering to an elite sort of person, place with barriers to entry, if you like. The exchange alley that we're talking about in 1720 was about 
anybody being able to come in, an equality that was troubling to the social system of the time. And that helps us to understand why there was such a fear of finance and the stock market itself that went beyond any criticism of what the South Sea Company might be doing or not doing. It's this area that we're told people went gambling mad, charging about in the alley, carousing in coffee houses, trading in shares and being carried away. But actually, as we'll see, quite a lot of people dealt with their share trading in a much more calm and organized way. Trading in shares might be a bit like any sort of auction, like a cattle auction, for example. It might be quite loud and confusing to an outsider. But that doesn't mean that people are gambling mad, nor is it correct to claim that just because people played gambling games in their personal lives, that they viewed all investments as some sort of gamble. There may very well have been some people who were problem gamblers or who overinvested in the stock market, who made foolish decisions, but are they the norm? And that is what I hope to go on to discuss. Before we look at the South Sea bubble and indeed the financial architecture of the scheme, we need to look at the South Sea Company itself, which was founded in 1711 to deal with Navy debt. And what was that? Well, aside from agriculture, the Navy sector was the most important sector in the economy, certainly in the industrial economy. The Navy yards and private contractors together formed a huge proportion of the industrial activity. But also the Royal Navy was crucial for defense, warfare, for protecting shipping from attack from a range of enemies, including pirates, privateers, and enemy shipping. So it was crucial that the Royal Navy be able to continue its activities. Royal Navy contractors were used to charging high prices on the understanding that they were essentially going to offer very generous terms of credit to the British government, which was often in arrears with payments. These arrears became so serious at one stage that the Navy contractors simply refused to supply any more to the government unless something was done. So they were issued with shares in this new company, the South Sea, on the understanding that it would be valuable in the future and that it would have the British government's monopoly to go and trade in slaves to Spanish-held colonies. Now, at this point, you may note the Spanish themselves hadn't yet given their permission, but that came later in 1713 with the Treaty of Utrecht, ending the War of the Spanish Succession, when Spain handed over what was called the Asiento to Queen Anne. The Asiento was the contract to trade in slaves to Spanish-held colonies. This exactly was the weak point in Spain's empire. This vast empire didn't have any kind of real connection to the West African coast directly. The Spanish were dependent on other nationalities to bring in enslaved Africans into their colonies to, for example, work in the mines. Without those slaves, the Spanish empire 
probably wouldn't have been able to continue in the same way because they found it very difficult to bring in labor from Europe. And of course, the local populations had been devastated by disease. Although some of them were enslaved, there was a problem of replacing people because so many died in slavery. And that was part of the horror of the trade is that you had to keep replenishing the stocks of enslaved people because so many of them died. The Treaty of Utrecht allowed the British government to formally give the contract to the South Sea Company on the understanding that it would work alongside the existing slave trader, the Royal African Company, and also have support from the Royal Navy, support which was crucial. The company would be given a royal charter, allowing it to issue shares. And these shares were not going to be like a partnership where people were liable for the company's debts, but they could only lose the amount of money they'd invested. And that's a very important point. That's why having a royal charter was so crucial in being able to function as a company at this stage. These companies like the Royal African Company in the South Sea should be viewed not really as private companies, but as quasi public entities, providing various aspects of support to the government, the state, but also receiving support in turn, like say, naval protection. We'll get on to the debt management role the company played for the government, which is really quite complicated. First, we'll go through the company's slave trading activities. Some people who criticized the South Sea, who argue that it wasn't really interested in the slave trade, point to the fact that it was a new company and the slave trade itself was very, very complicated. You needed to provide slave traders along the West African coast with a variety of trade goods. They were very, very picky. They would want different combinations of things, different types of cloth, for example, at different points along the coast. And sometimes what they wanted last year, they didn't want this year. It was important to have somewhere to store excess goods and to protect them, but also to have connections to the local kings. Because actually the slave forts were not on land owned by European nations, but rented from African kingdoms. The African kings had a lot more power than some people realize, and that meant that the diplomatic aspects of a company's connections are very, very important. It was possible for independent traders to come along with their ships and start trading at the coast. But that was much, much riskier than people who had protected harbors and established connections. And in the British context, those people were the Royal African Company. This is a coin which is connected to the company. Perhaps you can work out how I know this. It's made of gold and Africa was producing gold. The Europeans referred to the African coast as the Guinea coast. And that's where we get the word Guinea for a type of coin. This coin is of Charles II. You can see there's something underneath his head, but what is that? It's actually a very small elephant. This tells me that it is gold from Africa, but it also tells me that that gold has been brought in 
by the Royal African Company. I don't need to see the company's initials or any sort of explanation to make that connection, as indeed would people at the time. They knew the Royal African Company was perhaps facing difficulties in the early years of the century, but it was still a force to be reckoned with. So whilst the Royal African Company's monopoly should not be overstated, its ability to know the trade inside and out was important. It did, however, own buildings like this, albeit on the rented land. This is Cape Coast Castle, it still stands today. This is perhaps one of the most impressive forts along the coast. Some of them were on a much, much smaller scale and were simply more or less protected warehouses. This protects the goods that the company owns and of course their officials. It provides a dungeon to keep in enslaved Africans, but it also allows a protected harbor for ships and a place for the Royal Navy to come as well in order to communicate with the Royal African Company who are operating a bit like a government embassy in a certain sort of a way. We can think of say the East India Company's very complicated relationship with the state in a similar fashion. And Royal Navy support was crucial, not just because of enemy shipping, but also because of pirates swarming up and down the coast. This man here is perhaps one of the more famous of them, Captain Bartholomew Roberts, who died off the coast of West Africa after a skirmish with the Royal Navy. He was known to them as the great pirate Roberts. His stance here in the foreground shows us that if we look behind him, we can see something burning in the distance. But what is that? It's actually supposed to be a slave fort. He may have died, but his crew, the remaining members of his crew, were essentially arrested by the Royal Navy and taken to Cape Coast Castle and put in the dungeon. They were then tried by a combination of Royal Navy officials, but also Royal African Company officials, showing a kind of government role or official role that a private company wouldn't really have. And it's the convoy protection that's extremely important. Knowing that helps you understand why South Sea Company shares might have been more impressive than you'd been led to believe. And in fact, it's not true that the company was not interested in, in trading in slaves at all and hadn't bothered that doesn't make a lot of sense when you realize that it would be easy for, for example, marine insurers to notice whether any ships were being insured or not, or whether they were leaving the Thames or not. And in fact, here is some data that I published in my book several years ago, showing the number of slaves landed from the transatlantic South Sea Company voyages. I got the data from a CD-ROM and it was at that point data that really only academics knew existed. So we knew that people were being put on these ships and shipped across the Atlantic, but a lot of other people did not. And that may help to explain the persistence of the myth that the company 
simply didn't do any slaving, which again then links into the idea that it was a ridiculous fraud and that anyone investing in it was some sort of idiot. But I think it's important as well, especially with the revival of interest in the horrors of the slave trade, to make it very clear that the South Sea Company did ship slaves. And that's much more easy for the public to ascertain for themselves these days because that CD-ROM, that old piece of technology has been replaced by an online database, easily accessible, called the slavevoyages.org database. For example, I can look into the details of a particular voyage in a ship owned by the South Sea. I've chosen the St. Mark, and I know the name of the captain, Peter Solgard. You can also see that they sailed from London in 1713. It's often the case that London is not seen as a slave trading port. Bristol and Liverpool are clearly known to the public for their slave trading activities, but London, for example, seems to have been overlooked. However, this is where the ships were going from. So that was clearly under the view of anyone trading in the London Stock Exchange, as it was then the Exchange Alley area, quite close to the river. This ship, the St. Mark, arrived on the West African coast in 1714. One of the places it stopped was Cape Coast Castle. And it left Africa with 280 enslaved people on board. The conditions would have been horrendous. And this is the middle passage that they're about to embark on. Some die on board that ship. They arrive at Kingston, Jamaica, and then the slaves would have been let off and allowed to recover from their journey before being potentially transshipped on to the Spanish held colonies. We can see that about 10% of those enslaved people were children. It is important to remember the human cost of the South Sea Company, even though that hasn't really been stressed in favor of stories about gambling manias and fraud and folly. It's been turned really into an entertainment more than anything else. There is this very, very sad history behind it. And now we come to the perhaps the most difficult part of the story, at least from the point of view of the person who has to explain it, the debt for equity swap. Many people haven't even heard of this. And when they do hear about it, they think it's some sort of trick because you have people who hold government debt being encouraged to swap it for South Sea Company shares. Swapping really good investment for a bad one, apparently. But is that actually true? Well, we should not think of early modern British government debt as being the same as the gilt-edged securities of today. The government back then, as I've already explained with the Navy contractors, was often trying to avoid paying its debts or unable to do so. In order to maintain control over the most important and powerful politicians, Parliament was unwilling to grant them a free hand by letting them have cheap, perpetual debt. They had to keep rearranging short-term debt contracts, which were very expensive to do, and essentially 
the government's ability to raise money was now in a tangled mess. There were various debt instruments in the hands of a large range of people and the government was needing to clear all this up. One of the types of debt it issued was an annuity. For example, a promise to pay an annual payment. Those annuities sound good, but they are illiquid because you can't sell them on easily to anybody else. So if you're in a crisis and you need cash, it might be better to have something that is easily changed into cash, like say, shares. And that's one reason why you might want to get rid of the debt as it was at the time. It was difficult to pass those debt instruments on to somebody else, but shares were readily assignable. You could pass them on to someone else and sell them easily. I've discussed something about how the company shares benefited from being backed by a royal charter, meaning that you weren't enmeshed in the company's debt problems. You could only lose that which you put in. And the government's arrears to debt holders meant that this was not such a safe investment as you might think. There were also huge red tape costs of dealing with large numbers of people holding different sorts of contracts. And essentially, by bundling all that up to deal with one company as a middleman, the government benefited hugely from these red tape costs disappearing. The company itself had bargaining power to deal with the government while as all these small debt holders around the place couldn't really join together easily to force the government to pay them. So essentially, the South Sea was acting like a conduit. It would deal with the debt holders, it would give them its shares. The company would pay it a fee, that set fee would then be passed on to the shareholders as dividends. If anyone needed money quickly, they could simply sell their shares well as they couldn't with their older debt instruments. So there is actually a sensible reason why people might be interested in what's called a debt for equity swap, changing your government IOU for a company share. And as well, the company was also allowed to sell shares on directly to the public through what's called the primary market. This is exactly the setup of the Bank of England. There's nothing particularly strange about it, and it isn't a magic trick. Once you understand that, you realize that people like Thomas Guy were not particularly interested in the prospects of playing the market. What he wanted in order to found his hospital is that steady government fee that went from the government to the company and then from the company to the shareholders. He just wanted something that was going to be a steady payment for his hospital. Only when the shares went up in value to ridiculous levels did he realize that it made more sense for him to sell out and then he could buy in later on or his managers of his fund could after his death. So this is the part which is perhaps a wee bit dull, and I can understand why people are more interested in the entertaining stories of scandal and drama and folly. But it would be wrong to think that people in the early 18th century were all idiots and that there was no way that they would know 
what was in their own interests. If you were a government debt holder, you had very serious problems with those instruments that you held, and you might be keen to swap them for shares. This actually happened in four tranches. And as the share price of the South Sea Company rose, debt holders were given fewer and fewer shares in exchange for their debts. The last round of the share swap with the debt holders, that last round was not very good for the people holding that government debt because when they were given a small amount of shares, which were at a very high value because the share price was inflated, then when the share price crashed, they realized that it had a very bad bargain. But what actually happened is the government went back and renegotiated that last round of a debt for equity swap. The first few people to swap their debt for equity probably did get quite a good deal out of it. And also what was going on across the water in France had a big impact as well. The French economy had been put under the charge of a man called John Law, a Scotsman. He was, amongst other things, a gambler. And perhaps through his gambling, he'd learned a lot about calculation of odds. He was also a visionary economic theorist. He had grand plans for the French economy involving a paper currency, bringing together various trading companies into one big, big company known to us as the Mississippi Company. Share prices on the Paris market rose, boomed, if you like, and then crashed. That is the Mississippi bubble. And money came over from France to London, which may partly explain why share prices boomed in London. That wasn't under the control of the South Sea Company directors. And it's not obviously fraud based. The South Sea Company copied what Law was doing in France and Law copied them to some extent as well. And they were engaged in a competition to revitalize their economies. Whoever won might be able to invade the other. And that was part of the reason why things were done at such a hasty way, especially on the French side of the water. Law's system, as it's called, his system, was visionary but not very well implemented, and he had to flee when the economy started to really suffer from the effects of the collapse of the stock market, linked as it was to the currency and to this huge trading company, the Mississippi. Nothing similar happened in England because, of course, the South Sea Company was only one of a number of different companies. And the Bank of England was not caught up in what had gone on with the South Sea. So for all the talk of disaster, actually the British economy didn't come out too badly, whilst the French economy took a real hit. It's notable that all the publicity given to the Mississippi and the South Sea companies at the time also brought in new investors who were perhaps very naive and may have overinvested or got carried away. You also must realize that you don't need too many of those sorts of people to start seeing the share price running away with itself. The company directors of the South Sea Company tried various things to get people 
more interested in their shares, including issuing loans of cash to people who were shareholders. That's not something that I think you would do today. They were issuing bribes to important people, but that was part and parcel of the way business was done at the time and not directly obviously connected to the bubble itself. In fact, it's wrong to think that everybody went gambling mad, partly because many people had to take a very calm and collected view of what they were going to do. Thomas Guy, for example, simply wanted a steady investment to maintain his hospital. And there were people who were sitting far away from the hubbub of Exchange Alley, sending in documents like this one. This is a power of attorney document, which Eliza or Elizabeth Bard has sent from Bedford to London. It allows somebody else to go and carry out various activities related to the South Sea on her behalf. You could use these for buying or selling shares or collecting dividends so that somebody could go and do these things for you. Of course, you would decide in Bedford what you wanted done in London. You weren't caught up in the heat of the moment because you were nowhere near the alley. You can see this is a particularly ornate pro forma. It's got the South Sea Company's crest at the top, probably printed by one of the London stationers to make things easy for people who are interested in trading in South Sea shares. And if we're talking about scandal, it should be noted that Eliza Bard got the local curate of St. Mary's in the town of Bedford and two church wardens to witness this document. The increase in the share prices brought in naive investors who thought they were going to make a lot of money and were very upset when they did not. However, stories about people being ruined and losing vast estates are likely to be untrue. Economic historians can't find much evidence of prolonged or serious damage to the real economy. In similar way, naive investors came into the market through the dot-com bubble, but that's very different to the 1929 Wall Street crash or the 2007-2008 crisis. The South Sea gets a lot of attention because people didn't understand it, but they knew about it and the hunt was on for a scapegoat. On the practical side, the Bank of England helped deal with financial issues by taking over some of the South Sea Company's government debt and managing that. The company itself underwent some reforms, but the directors were hauled before the parliament and something called a secret committee, which ironically was there to make things public, not secret, looked into the various machinations that went on particularly the bribes. Bribes were something that everyone could understand, even though they were pretty common. And some of the people who took bribes were punished, like John Aislaby, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was put in the Tower of London. Not for very long, but as a token gesture, because the Tower was where you sent traitors. Meanwhile, other people who took bribes, like George I's mistress, were not punished. And this is because George I was a new king. He was the first of the Hanoverians. He was a Protestant from Germany, and that's why he was king. Skipping over various Catholic 
potential rivals because the idea was that only a Protestant could be King of England. There was a rival Catholic branch, the Stuart Kings, who were protected by France. And if they'd come back to their kingdom, as many people thought they should, then they would probably have refused to continue paying out on government debt contracted during the time of the supposed illegitimate rivals from William of Orange onwards. That would have really created an economic shock. Walpole was quite judicious in allowing for some kind of punishment, some sort of outcry, and then putting a stop to that and moving on. In fact, he made sure that some of the company books left the country so that people like the king's mistress could not be exposed. Here we see Robert Knight, the cashier, leaving with the books. He's taking the devil's Lucifer's robarge to the continent where he was then captured. But Walpole made some show of wanting him back and behind the scenes asked his captors to let him go. People knew that Walpole had not let the complete truth come out and called him the screen master general, satirizing him as such. Meanwhile, the company continued its debt management and its trading activities. For instance, in 1723, coins were minted using silver brought in by the company. We can see the SSC stamped on them. And if you're interested to see what a South Sea Company ship might look like, this is probably the best image, even though it's on fire. This is the ill-fated Luxborough galley, which went on fire in 1727 on its way back home. The ships continued sailing. The company continued handling government debt. It also got into the whaling trade for a bit before eventually giving up its trading activities and simply becoming a way of managing government debt. Meanwhile, its reputation as some sort of fraud, the bubble as some kind of folly continued on to become very popular indeed. Charles Mackay's books, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds was a big seller in the Victorian era, filled with illustrations like this one. And the whole story became simplified, the slave trading dropped out of it, the whole thing became some sort of mysterious fraud. The various complicated aspects of the company removed. The company itself, of course, just became a way that people could get low risk investments that would pay out regularly. That continued to the mid 19th century when the government took its debt back again. And at that point, a lot of the company books were thrown out. So we don't necessarily know exactly who owned what, allowing stories and myths to arise, like the idea that Isaac Newton lost a lot of money. His famous quote about being able to calculate the movement of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people, is not likely to be true. Newton scholars think that he didn't really lose a lot of money, but that it's part of the myth of the bubble. So the South Sea Company, to its contemporaries seemed like a good investment. And now hopefully you can understand more about that. 
the debt for equity swap was not some sort of magic trick, but the same system was used to found the Bank of England. And indeed, the company itself has become simply a byword for fraud rather than being a particularly in-depth history, partly because some of these aspects had disappeared from view, the slavery side and maybe the understanding of what government debt was actually like in the early modern era, that it was nothing like the government guilts of today. I hope that I've managed to explain some of these complexities to you, and I hope you've enjoyed the talk. Thank you very much for your attention. And I'd like to thank the Gresham College once again for inviting me to give the talk.